I have a question for y'all. If you'll turn to your neighbor and answer this question. If you won the lottery, what would you do with the money? So turn to your neighbor and ask question. If you won the lottery, what would you do with the money? It's a fun question. Isn't that a fun question? Um, so what we're doing this semester during this time is um, we are going through questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. And as I said, the past couple of weeks, um, looking through the Gospels, he asks about 290 questions. And it's interesting that um, when Jesus came, he could have just told us everything that we needed to know, but instead um, he came and asked a lot of questions. And questions are powerful because they take us places that we wouldn't go on our own. Um, they have a sneaky way of getting around our defenses and uh, they, they reorient us. And so the two questions in what Anna read for us tonight that we're going to look at, um, he, he says them back to back, and they are in verses 35 and 36 when Jesus says, What does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? So we're going to spend most of our time fo- focusing on that first question tonight. So outline is, you see it in your notes, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what's the alternative? Um, so I want to start tonight by telling you a story, tell you a story of a man who gained the whole world. Uh, this man was born in 1953, and he was raised in Coney Island, New York. Um, people say that he showed early signs of brilliance. He finished high school, uh, but he didn't finish college. And he was a math whiz, and he went and took a teaching job on the Upper East Side of New York and taught high school um, math and science. I don't know, is that the wind? <laughs> I think they're polishing the floors outside. Um, and so looking back, as people were reflecting on his teaching career, um, people said that, that he reminded them of Robin Williams's character, Robin Williams's character in Dead Poets Society, that he would wow these high school classes with his passionate mathematical riffs. And so impressed was one dad of a student who was a Wall Street um, guy, he told him point blank, what are you doing teaching high school? You should be on Wall Street. Why don't you give my friend at Bear Stearns a call? So in 1976, he dropped everything and went to work for Bear Stearns, which at the time was one of the highest regarded investment banks. By 1980, he made partner. And in 1981, he left the firm and opened his own shop and only took clients who had more than a billion dollars to invest. Like he reject, there are stories of him rejecting people who had like 750 million to invest. Um, so fast forward 21 years to 2002, and by this time, um, I read that he had a small fleet of private planes, um, he had homes across the world, he had amassed a group of world-renowned scientists who he kept on payroll, paid them about $20 million a year, employing them to research and develop answers to the world's greatest questions. He developed relationships with the most powerful people in the world. He became friends with presidents and CEOs and celebrities, the who's who of global power and influence. And by all accounts, he gained the whole world. He knew all the right people. He was rich, powerful, and famous. Do you all know who I'm talking about? This is Jeffrey Epstein. The same Jeffrey Epstein who was facing facing up to 45 years in prison if he was convicted for the charges against him of child sex trafficking. This is a man who gained the whole world and lost his soul. And in the end, in the last days, I read that he paid lawyers to sit with him in his prison cell because he couldn't handle being alone. And as you, as you know, a month ago today, he died in that cell. 
And so Jesus gives us this question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? And I know this is heavy stuff tonight, but this is of the utmost importance. So let's go back to our lottery question. What would you do if you won the lottery? Um, There are countless stories of people winning the lottery and it ruining them, it it just ruining their lives. Um, People who win the lottery end up with messy divorces, their lives become mired in addiction, they end up in jail, they end up bankrupt. I read a story this morning about a man in a small town in West Virginia who was a very quiet, humble, simple man, and then maybe 20 years ago, he won the largest sum ever won in in Powerball. It was like three, I think it was 200 million he took home. And uh, he was talking about how he was gonna use his money to bless his neighbor and to care for his community. And then that night, or the next night, he went to a strip club with $50,000 and put it down on the table. Um, Just what this does to people, this type of money. I was talking with a friend about this question, And he suggested that I look up the stats on the loss of happiness in the U.S. And it's really fascinating to read what people are reading about, are writing about happiness, like people are doing their PhDs on happiness. Um, And, right, the the pursuit of happiness, it's part of being American, it's written into our constitution, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. This is like part of who America is, and at least part of who we think we should be. And we have everything, right? We can buy anything that we want, but we are far, we are so far from being the happiest people on this planet, right? We, we pretty much sneer at countries that are happier and more content than us because we think that's supposed to be us. We're supposed to be the happiest. Um, I want you to think with me for a minute. Think about the first time you went abroad and you visited a poor community somewhere else in the world. Or the first time when one of your friends uh, told you about their, their first time doing this, going on a mission trip. Do you remember what they said when they encountered uh, global poverty for the first time? Did they say something like, they have nothing, and yet they're so happy? How can that be? We have everything, and we don't have the happiness they have. All right, here's our problem. The seeds of this, the seeds of this desire to gain the whole world is in all of our hearts. And whether you found yourself longing for what, Jeff, for what Epstein had, or longing for winning the lottery, or one day becoming governor or CEO or whatever it may be, or just being a winner in your own little corner of the world. This is in all of our hearts. I mean, and most of y'all are here at Wake Forest because you won. Like, y'all won high school. Um, right? You're laughing because you're like, yeah, yeah. Um, you were the best and the brightest of your high school. That's how you got here. And then you got here, and you are, by the standards of the university, just like everyone else. And then you hit the wall, right? You discovered, maybe for the first time, this seed in your heart, this longing to gain the world, to win, right? You don't have to win the lottery or be world famous to have the opportunity to lose your soul and gain the world. In the words of Walker Percy, you can get all A's and still flunk life. So why is this part of who we are as humans? Why does this afflict all of us? Because this is something that we all experience as humans. Well, the way that the Bible answers this question, and it tells the story of who we are, is that in the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is life, created life. At the pinnacle of his creation, he created humans in his image. He placed his first humans in a garden and gave them commands. He said, be fruitful and multiply, create life, fill the earth with abundant life, have dominion over every living thing. And all of these commands that he gave have to do with the fullness of life on earth. 
God was saying to his people, all of this is for you to rule over so that it might be full of life. And then in Genesis 2, God commands Adam and Eve. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but one tree, the knowledge tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what's going on here? God is saying, if you attempt to get life apart from me, away from me, it will lead to death. But if you obey me, if you walk in my commands, every tree in the garden I've given for you, you will have full, abundant life. Right? That command he gives is every tree except that one because grasping at life apart from me is death. This is important. Here's why. Immediately following this, God's enemy disguised as a serpent enters the garden and he lies to the woman and said, you will not surely die if you eat from that one tree because God is holding out on you. He knows that if you eat it, you will be like him. What the serpent was saying to Eve is he's saying, God is holding out on you. The real life, the good stuff is found where he said not to go. He's holding on to the good stuff for himself. He's withholding it from you. And this is that great double lie that we all believe as we enter the world, that I cannot trust God because he doesn't love me. Because if he loved me, he wouldn't be holding out on me. And so Adam and Eve ate of that tree. They took their lives into their own hands rather than trusting God, rather than putting their faith in God, that he would provide everything they needed. And the Bible calls this sin. And their sin is our sin, that when we look for life in places where God has not promised that it would be, when we look for life away from and apart from him. And a result of their sin is that they were exiled from the garden and exiled from God's presence. And y'all, I know this story sounds crazy, but it also rings true because it names what we feel every day of our lives. We don't trust that the life that we long for is found in God alone. So we spend our days grasping at all that the world offers, hoping that it'll give us life. This is why you online shop during class. This is why you mindlessly scroll through Instagram. This is why you daydream about being in the right sorority. This is why you can't escape the pull of pornography or the drunken hookups. It's that whisper, that lie, that if you're going to experience real life, you're going to have to get it on your own. You're going to have to get it apart from God. And since that day in the garden, the double lie of the serpent has been in our ears and in our hearts. You cannot trust God because he doesn't love you. And this lie has worked its way into every corner of our lives. In a column this summer, David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, um, he articulated five lies that our culture tells us. Five lies that our culture promises life, the way that our culture promises life and lies to us. And I want to share these with you because I think they're really helpful for exposing the ways that we um, are taught uh, to gain the world. So first, the lie is career success is fulfilling. This is a lie that we foist on the young, Brooks writes. He says, in their tender years, this is y'all, tender years, in their tender years, we put the most privileged of them inside a college admissions process that puts achievement and status anxiety at the center of their lives. That begins advertising lifelong mantra, if you make it, life will be good. Everybody who has actually tasted success can tell you that's not true. I remember when the editor of my first book called to tell me that it had made the bestseller list. It felt like nothing. It was external to me. The truth is, success spares you from the shame you might experience if you feel yourself a failure, but career success alone does not provide positive peace or fulfillment. If you build your life around it, your ambitions will always race out in front of whatever you've achieved, 
leaving you anxious and dissatisfied. The second lie our culture tells us is that I can make myself happy. This is the lie of self-sufficiency. This is the lie that happiness is an individual accomplishment. If I can just have one more victory, if I can just lose 15 pounds or get better at meditation, then I will be happy. But people looking back on their lives from their deathbeds tell us that happiness is found among thick and loving relationships. It is found by defeating self-sufficiency for a state of mutual dependence. It is found in the giving and receiving of care. And it's easy to say that you live for relationships, but it's very hard to do. It's hard to see other people in all their complexity. It's hard to communicate from your depths, not your shallows. It is hard to stop performing. No one teaches us these skills. So the lies were told, career success is fulfilling, I can make myself happy. Third, life is an individual journey. Who was given the book, Oh, the Places You Go When You Graduate High School? Yeah, I was given it too. This is the lie that books like Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go tell. In adulthood, each person goes on a personal trip and racks up a bunch of experiences and whoever has the most experiences win. This lie encourages people to believe that freedom is the absence of restraint. Be unattached. Stay on the move. Keep your options open. In reality, the people who live best tie themselves down. They don't ask, what cool thing can I do next? They ask, what is my responsibility here? They respond to some problem or get called out of themselves by a deep love. By planting themselves in one neighborhood, one organization, one mission, they earn trust. They have the freedom to make a lasting difference. He says, it's the chains that we choose that set us free. And lastly, um, the fifth one he gives, I'll skip the fourth one. The fifth one he gives is that rich and successful people are worth more than poorer and less successful people. He writes, we pretend that we don't tell this lie, but our whole meritocracy points to it. In fact, the meritocracy contains a tangled knot of lies. The message of the meritocracy is that you are what you accomplish. The false promise of the meritocracy is that you can earn dignity by attaching yourself to prestigious brands. The emotion of the meritocracy is conditional love, that if you perform well, then people will love you. The sociology of the meritocracy is that society is organized around a set of inner rings with the high achievers inside and everyone else further out looking in. The anthropology of the meritocracy is that you are not a soul to be saved, but you are a set of skills to be maximized. He writes, no wonder it's so hard to be a young adult today. No wonder our society is fragmenting. We've taken the lies of hyper-individualism. We've made them the unspoken assumptions that govern how we live. Friends, this is the type of culture we build when we grasp for life on our own. When we believe the the serpent's lies, excuse me, that God cannot be trusted because he does not love us. So what is the alternative? What is the alternative to the meritocracy, as Brooks puts it? What is the alternative to the meritocracy that tells you that you are what you accomplish? That your dignity is found in you attaching yourself to prestigious brands? That your lovability is attached to your performance? That you are not a soul to be a saved, but a set of skills to be maximized? What is the alternative? Well, look with me what Jesus says in verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. 
Jesus says that the alternative to gaining the world and losing your soul involves three things. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Jesus is saying that the life that we long for, the life that we're trying to get through our grasping, is found in these things. That those who follow Jesus do not self-actualize, they self-deny. They don't look out for number one, they look out for him, and they don't set their mind on selfish, worldly things, they set their minds on the things of God. And the operative word here is and. We don't get to pick two of the three. We, we can't simply deny ourselves and follow him, we must also take up our cross. Either can we just take up the cross and follow, we must do all three, all three. deny, take up the cross, and follow. And when Jesus is talking about taking up your cross, He's not talking about taking up human burdens or like hard relationships. He's not talking about doing hard things or being with difficult people. Um, Cross-bearing as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to following him. And the secret here is that this is the way of total freedom. Because if you keep your life holy to yourself, protecting it against all others, asserting all your rights, your needs, and your privileges you lose it because it isn't life any longer. The life that is locked down out of fear is a life lived in the coffin of your own selfishness. And in that safe, dark, airless place, your heart will shrivel up. But if you acknowledge that life is not yours by right, but that it is, all of life is a gift, and that it is to be lived in the love of God and that it is yours in Jesus, this self-giving, other-centered love of God, then you gain life. There is now nothing to lose and everything to gain. And when Jesus calls people to take up their cross and follow him, this would have had a visceral impact on his first audience. Because in the first century Roman Empire, the cross was this this image of torture. It was the instrument of cruelty and pain and dehumanization and shame. The cross symbolized Roman oppression, and it was the most visible and ubiquitous symbol of terror of the Roman Empire. In 71 BC, the Roman general Crassus defeated the slave rebel Spartacus, and then he crucified him and 6,000 of his followers on the Appian Way between Rome and Capua. And then a century later, about the time that this passage was written, Nero, who was emperor of Rome, he crucified and burned Christians who were falsely accused of setting fire to Rome. The Gospel of Mark was written to the church in Rome during this time. This means that Jesus' call to self-denial and suffering and using this image would assure his people that their persecution under Nero was not a sign of God's abandonment, but rather of their identification with and faithfulness to Jesus himself. And then about 2,000 years later, in 1937, there was a German pastor uh, under Nazi rule named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was a pastor and martyr, and he wrote this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he calls a man to come and die understanding that in order to gain life, he must lose it. And then 20 years later, in 1956, Jim Elliott, who was a Christian martyr and missionary to the Warani Indians in Ecuador, he wrote this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So what does this look like for you as a college student? Well, this is the choice that is before you, the choice between saving your life and losing it, or losing your life for Jesus and his gospel and saving it. So in the classroom, when you have the choice between edging someone out to raise your grades or helping someone out to raise their grades, 
or in your dorms, when you have the choice between using someone else's weaknesses and insecurities to raise your social standing, or using your own social standing to care for others and their weakness and insecurity, or in your relationships, when you have the choice between hoarding people who make you feel good or freely sharing your friends because you want them to make others feel good, or even here in RUF, when you have the choice between making this group a clique that exists to serve your felt needs or seeing this group as a tool to love and serve your classmates who don't know that RUF exists for them. Cross-bearing as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to following him. And the secret here is that that is, that is the way of total freedom. Whoever would lose his life for my sake, Jesus says, and the gospels will save it. And here's the most beautiful thing about this. Jesus doesn't call you to do anything that he hasn't done for you first. Because the call that he offers, the life that he promises, is in following him. And that means that he goes first. He goes first. Jesus, he had full life, eternal life. He dwelled in perfect harmony and community and life with the Father and the Spirit, and he gave it up. He gave it up. He came, he left heaven, and he came to earth. He gave it up. 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus emptied himself of all of his glory and wealth and splendor and entered this world as a baby born to an unwed teenage mom who is a political refugee fleeing the Roman oppression into Egypt. Like he took the lowest place for you. He went first. And his entire life was a denial of self. His entire life was a denial of self. His prayer, not my will, but thy will be done, that he prayed before entering, um, entering his suffering on the cross. His entire life was giving up of his desires, his preferences for you. And, when, and then he took up his cross for us. He went to the cross for us. He calls us to carry our cross, but he first carried his. Went to the cross, forsaken by the Father, so that you will never be forsaken by the Father. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, never grasping at the world, always trusting his Father. He died the death that we deserve. He was punished for our sin because he loves us, so that through faith in him, we who have forfeited our souls can have life. Not life that we've earned, but life that he has saved for you. He gave his life for you because he loves you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is who Jesus is for you. He gave his life for you so that you can lose yours for his sake in the Gospels. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I'll end with this question from Jesus. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Let's pray.